0: God, I thank you for your presence here, and just through worship, um, to know that you are um, enjoying, that you are uh, basking in the praises of your people. We thank you for your presence, and we thank you that you draw us to yourself, and I pray through this next time that you would speak to us. Um, We've been expressing ourselves to you, and now it's my prayer that my words would be your words. And that particularly your Holy Spirit would tailor those words to the um, phase of life, to the place of life that each person is in. And we know that's uh, possible only with you. Because some of us are in a good place and some are in a hard place. And some are in between. And some are confused. And some are seeking you in a way they never have. And only you know that. And so speak to each of us right where we are. And I pray that you'd give us ears to hear. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to start us out with a visualization exercise this morning. Some of you are very visual, some of you are visually challenged, so let's see how you do. I need everyone to picture a mailman right now. Mailman, okay, we got a mailman over here. Oh, I should say mail, it could be a mail person. Oh, it's a mailman, okay, good. What does a mailman carry? Mail. (laughs) This is difficult, I told you, it could be challenging for some of us. A mailman might be walking, a mailman might be driving one of those cool little trucks with a steering wheel on both sides... A mailman is putting letters in people's boxes. Okay, let's picture a nun. A little little change there. Let's picture a nun. What what faith is a nun? A a nun is Catholic. Good, some of you uh, Catholics are here to keep us informed. A nun is a female. I know that. A nun is not married. For those of us uh, a little older, maybe over 40, some would picture the pre-Vatican II nun that had the fancy black and white gear on. Remember the flying nun? Uh, some of you got that visual. That's not how it is anymore. But either way, we know that a nun is Catholic. A nun is a woman. A nun is not married. Okay, let's take a real turn here. How about a rapper? All right, getting it? Picture that? Okay, the rapper. What, what might we say about a rapper? Baggy pants? Yeah, big time. What's that? Talks fast. Yeah, got something to say. Got the rhythm. Got a DJ behind him, bling bling, you got that going, somebody knows, we see it. Okay, let's try a basketball player. What is a basketball player holding? You know, the last service, they just said a ball, and I said, let's clarify, what kind of ball? So you guys are on top of it. We got a basketball, what's a basketball player wearing, baggy shorts, although in the 70s they were very tight shorts, so it depends on your generation, again. All right, so we can see it, right? We're we're getting pretty good at this. A pilot. What about a pilot? What do we see? We see airplanes. We see someone hopefully very sober, very wide awake. (laughs) Yep. Especially if we're the one getting on the plane. Okay, so we can see that the uniform, the wings, the hat, certain thing that we identify a pilot with. And so all of these, for the mailman, the nun, the rapper, the basketball player, the pilot, we, we picture it and we see... That's what it looks like. And there's probably a lot of agreement in how we picture those. Now, let me give you one that's a little bit more challenging. Picture a Christian. Ooh, see, you hear that? Ooh. Yeah, we're feeling it. Or maybe we're not feeling it. <laughs> okay, so see if you come up with anything on the Christian. All right, I'll give you one more that's a little challenging. A disciple of Jesus. Okay. Now, we saw the rapper. I mean, we were feeling it. We got that. We saw the mailman. We're all on the same page. Maybe there were some differences in how we all, what, how, what we all thought of when, when I said Christian. We might not have come up with the same thing. Some of us might have drawn a blank. Now, what about in your own mind when you picture a, a Christian versus a disciple of Jesus? For some of us, that's the same thing. For some, we came up, we surprised ourselves, and we came up with a very different picture. Well, for a lot of people, especially those outside the church, when you say the word Christian, they get a negative image, unfortunately, sometimes. They might see someone who's very judgmental, right, and unhappy and critical. Some of them see TV preachers who are spitting into the camera, passionate and asking for money. Some see hypocrites. We hear that all the time. Some Merely picture an American because around the world, people identify America as a Christian nation. And so when you say Christian, they think American, fairly or unfairly. Others see someone who knows a lot about the Bible and carries a really big one around with them, like a 10-pounder. They like to bang on it and tell you stuff and point their finger. Some of us see that. Okay, 10-pounder, maybe not. When I picture a disciple of Jesus, though, which I think is a better term, I see someone who really lives a sold-out life. Someone who's self-sacrificing, who's very giving. Someone who loves people beyond belief, who loves their enemies. Someone who feeds the hungry, who has peace that passes all understanding. Someone who's content, no matter if their circumstances are easy or difficult. Someone who can handle tough challenges. Someone who recognizes their weakness. Someone who's not afraid to ask for forgiveness. Someone who offers forgiveness much more easily than most. Someone who gives sacrificially to their neighbors in need, who knows how to be a trusted friend and confidant, Someone, in short, who's patterned their life after the life of Jesus. Now, it's interesting that biblically, disciple of Jesus and Christian are actually exactly the same thing. But today... The term disciple of Jesus isn't used so much. We mostly use the word Christian. And as I said, that brings up all sorts of different images for people. I think the reason why now we found such a bifurcation between a disciple of Jesus and a Christian is because our culture has really impacted how we think about these kinds of things. See, years and years ago, everyone who wanted to learn a job became an apprentice or a disciple to someone who knew that job. So if you wanted to be a rabbi, you hooked yourself up with a rabbi, and you learned everything that rabbi knew. You memorized the Old Testament, you memorized their teachings, you learned to pattern yourself after this rabbi. If you wanted to be a carpenter or a blacksmith, you worked alongside in the shop, pounding metal, cutting wood, building stools, whatever it is they do, you were right there alongside them. And when you made a mistake, they corrected it when you had a finished product, they told you everything that was good about it and everything that could be improved. And then you built another one, and the next one was better. And over the course of years, you learned from that mentor, from that person you had apprenticed yourself to, everything about how to do that trade or how to be a rabbi or whatever the trade was. Now today, how do we learn stuff? We go to school. And in some like college classrooms, there's this many people. And the person who knows everything, that would be me, stands up in front and tells everybody how it is. And we rely on basically this one-way mode of communication where you learn stuff and you go through four years of college and maybe you never even talk to the expert, but you get all this information dumped in your head and then when you graduate, you're supposed to go out and know how to be whatever it is you were planning to be. Maybe not a lot of hands-on, but you certainly didn't apprentice yourself one-on-one to someone who walks through for three or four years with you how to be that. And so I think what happens in this context is that sometimes we end up with Christians who know about Jesus instead of disciples who follow Jesus and model their lives after him. And there's a big difference. And this is one of the ways that our cultural context impacts how our Christian faith is lived out. And it's one of the reasons why, for some of us, when we picture a Christian versus a disciple of Jesus, we don't see the same thing. And some of us don't think of ourselves as really and truly having apprenticed ourselves Discipled ourselves signed up to live alongside jesus to learn how to live our lives we just sat in a classroom and got some information and so we're still missing a bit of the message so i thought well wouldn't it be interesting if we could say to jesus hey what do you picture when you see your disciple what comes to mind for you wouldn't that be exciting if we could do that well we can because <laughs> that's what the new testament is about <laughs> So we're going to take a look inside the mind of Christ, and we're going to ask the question, when Jesus thinks about his disciples, what does he see? So we're going to take a look at a couple of verses from the Gospels, and these are Jesus' words, first from Mark 8. We find Jesus calling the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the Gospel will save it. And then a verse from Luke 14. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So we at least find out a couple of things from these verses about what Jesus sees when he sees a disciple. We find that a Christian, an apprentice, a follower of Christ is one who has died to self, one who has denied themselves, one who has taken up the cross of Christ. Now, when Jesus says deny yourself in this verse, he's not saying just deny yourself something like TV or Diet Coke or candy for a bit, although those can be good disciplines. This is a really macro issue that he's addressing. And what he's saying is renounce yourself. He was saying to his disciples, now would be the time for you to stop living with self as the object and center of everything you do. Professor Kurt Peterson says discipleship involves the renunciation of self and a radical commitment to follow Christ, no matter what the cost. Now, for most of us, when I said picture a Christian, you didn't picture a martyr, necessarily, right? Or someone carrying a cross and suffering for the cause of Christ. You maybe didn't picture anything too radical when I said Christian. And for some of us, we didn't even have a whole lot of distinctive features. When we pictured a Christian, it kind of just looked like Joe and Jane, We weren't sure what to kind of add on. How do we make this person look like a Christian as opposed to not a Christian? And I think here again, we've got the clash of American values. Because American values say, who's at the center? Who's at the center of our American values? Me! And all of us walk around saying, it's all about me! And the media and school and our peer group and every kind of television ad constantly inundates us with this message. It's all about you! When my sister turned 40, we surprised her and put her in a little parade in my parents' small town. It's it's not really a nice thing to do, but we made a little float. And she had a little sash. And the sign that we carried said, Old Glory, this was a July 4th plate, Old Glory is 226 and Old Lori is 40. And we literally, like 30 of us, marched around this float. And there's my sister in a rocking chair. And she's going, she's just milked it. She's going up the street going, it's all about me it's all about me. And we won first prize in the parade. (laughs) And so when she gave us all a picture from the newspaper, she had it framed and the frame says, it's all about me. And I thought this is just in a joking way, but this is absolutely the core value of communicated to us all day, every day is it's all about me. And I think what emerges is what I like to call Disney Christianity. You know what I'm saying? Worship the mouse. This is what Peter Larson has to say about Disney Christianity. He says Disney's target market, and it has proved to be a large one, is an audience of people who want to believe in something that doesn't require anything of them. That's the religion that we've all been dying for, so it's a powerful thing. Well, you know, that's not the religion that Jesus died for. Jesus renounced self in a huge way and died, and he calls us to die to self and exchange our life for his. But we got a little bit of a conflict here between the religion that doesn't cost anything, that basically worships a mouse and the Magic Kingdom, and a religion where Jesus says, come and die, take up your cross and follow me. And how on earth are we going to reconcile these two realities? Jesus asks us to die, and a lot of us, if we're honest, are looking for something that doesn't cost us too much, certainly not our life. Now, I know some of you are saying, now, Sandra, the Christian life, the Christian faith is very, very simple. Jesus said, even a child can understand it, so don't be doing this to us. You're being a heretic, like our senior pastor often is. Well, let me explain the difference between simple and easy. And this is something that I've really been working through. Simple means having or composed of only one thing, element, or part. Easy means capable of being accomplished or acquired with ease, posing no difficulty, requiring or exhibiting little effort or endeavor, undemanding. See, this is a significant difference. Following Jesus is simple. He comes and says, trade in your life for mine. Remove yourself from the center and put me there. Even a child can understand that. That's what it means to be simple. But it's not easy. This is not something accomplished with ease, requiring little effort or endeavor. This is not something undemanding. The opposite of simple, obviously, is complex. And what I've learned in thinking through this is that I was raised with a Christian faith that was complex and easy. It was complex because there were all sorts of rules in this Christian faith that I was raised in. And the rules were things like, uh, girls, you need to wear long skirts, and boys, you need to have short hair, and you don't want to drink, you don't want to swear, you don't want to smoke, you don't want to play cards, you don't want to go to movies. Rule after rule after rule. But none of the rules involved being kind and loving and forgiving. So what happened is, it wasn't simple, composed of one parts. It was composed of many, many parts. But it was easy because it didn't require internal change. And in fact, this is the charge that Jesus leveled at the Pharisees. He said to them, you are putting a weight on people. You are making this complex. You have hundreds and hundreds of laws that you ask people to keep, little minuscule things that you have added onto my word. And so it was very complex, but again, it wasn't an inner change. He called them like whitewashed sepulchers who look good on the outside and are filthy on the inside. And so the religion of the Pharisees and the religion I was raised in, and maybe some of you, was a religion that was complex and easy. And that is the antithesis of the message of Jesus, which is a faith that's simple but hard. Because of this confusion, I think, about simple and easy, we've come to define the life of an apprentice to Jesus as undemanding or requiring little effort. But being a disciple of Jesus is really demanding. Just ask Paul and Peter and the disciples who are martyred for their faith. Just ask Christians who even today in some Middle Eastern or Asian countries are persecuted and tortured for their faith and have been throughout the centuries. For some people, the life of following Jesus is very, very demanding. And anytime you get in a place where it just feels easy all the time, there's probably something missing. But this is still good news. We don't want to throw out the gospel because the gospel is good news. And if we just walk around saying, it's really, 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 really hard all the time, it's not to sound like good news. Nobody's going to sign up for that. Really, I promise. This was the good news that I was raised in. Hey, walk up this aisle, pray this prayer, and then you don't have to do anything else at all. Your life and your eternity are all settled. Just go on about your business and wait to die or for Jesus to come back, preferably the latter. And at the age of five, I walked up the aisle and I made it to the altar and I said the prayer and my sins were forgiven. I was like, score, I'm five and I'm all set. I don't have to do anything else. It was a faith that said, go get your binoculars and wait for Jesus to come. The world is crumbling around us, but Jesus is coming and you're saved. I think Jesus' good news was just a little bit more substantive. And I think most of us, if we're honest, are looking for something more out of our spiritual lives than just that. This is Jesus' good news. Hey, he says to us, everyone who is broken and needy in any way, whether you even know it or not, anyone who is struggling with addictions, who is lonely, who's in a financial mess, who can't find a job, whose marriage is falling apart, whose teenagers are rebelling, who feels empty and depressed all the time or some of the time, who has intimacy issues, who feels rejection, who doesn't even know how to make a friend, Trade in all that, Jesus says, and become my disciple and my apprentice. It won't be easy, but I will give you everything you need. I will give you the gifts and the resources and the strength. I will give you an exciting and a risky job to do in this broken world. I will heal your hurts, and I will put you in the midst of a community that cares about all the things I care about. I will change your life both for today and for eternity. Exchange your empty or shallow or broken, or self-centered life for fulfilling Christ-centered adventure. Now that's what I call getting saved. That's what I call good news. That's just a little bit more substantive than walk up the aisle and get out your binoculars. But I think what happens is we take the good news of Jesus Christ, as I just expressed it, and we try to combine it with our old values, with our old ways of life, with our old patterns, and we still end up entangled, and we say, I thought this life was supposed to be victorious. I'm not experiencing victory. And it's because oftentimes the Christian faith is presented as an add-on. You just keep doing everything you're doing and stick Jesus on the side. Jesus becomes our bumper sticker. And the message is not an add-on. The message is a great exchange. What does Mark 8.35 say? Lose your life for Christ's sake and truly find it. This is a message that's both simple and hard. And this is a journey that may begin with that simple prayer where you walk the aisle. Or it may begin with you falling on your face on your kitchen floor and screaming, Help! But either way, we need to see that as the beginning of the journey, not the end. There's an organization called Servant Partners that really gets this. They get what it means to be a follower of Jesus and the simplicity of that, but they also understand that the calling is hard. And Servant Partners invites teenagers, uh, college students, young adults to go on serving opportunities overseas into the two-thirds world where there's a lot of poverty and invites them to spend an extended period of time serving. But before the youth can go, they have to commit to the guiding principles. And I'm going to share one paragraph from that with you. This is from Servant Partners Guiding Principles. We will seek to die to ourselves in all areas of life. Finances, possessions, housing, decision-making, and ministry opportunities. Instead of seeking status and honor among our peers, we will look to be servants. Now when you read about this organization, you think, wow, how radical is that? That's just crazy. And it does seem kind of radical, but really, (laughs) I think that's just the gospel. I mean, which part of this is outside of what Jesus just said about his disciples in Mark 8? And the whole message through the gospels. This is what we're called to. It just makes specific what we're going to die to, which is basically the substantive issues of life. And at the center of our decision-making now, we're going to put Jesus there. So I think the statement is really just the core of the gospel. And what concerns me, and I, I think what concerns Jesus, and I think what concerns a lot of people, is when the core of the gospel becomes its radical edge. Because that's actually what happened. Now, when we read about people who do these kinds of things, we say, whoa, it's cool that they do that. There's not very many of them. I hope I don't get invited into that. That's really radical. And really, it's just the core. They're living out in a specific way the calling of Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean all of us are going to go to the two-thirds world and do that, but all of us, the call of Christ is for us to die to ourselves in these areas. And it doesn't mean that all of us have to renounce having jobs and having money and having a life that actually works. We don't all have to be Mother Teresa. We don't all have to live the life of Sandra, thank goodness. But we do all have to look and say, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, what does that look like for me? Here's what I think. I think that this should be the sinner's prayer. So that when you decide to walk up the aisle and follow Jesus, you get up there and you say, I have walked this aisle... To say that I want to be a disciple of Jesus. And I am going to seek to die to myself in the areas of, and then list them off. The usual prayer, and the prayer that I prayed when I was five and walked up the aisle, says, I'm sorry for my sins. Now, it's questionable how much there is to be sorry for when you're five, although you do have some issues. And we should be sorry for our sins, and you should be sorry for our sins, and we should all be sorry for our sins. And that's part of what Jesus came to heal us from, was our sin. But the question is, what are you going to do with that? So when I walk forward and I say, I'm sorry for my sins, and then I get up the next day and the next day and the next day and the next week and the next month, what does it mean that I'm sorry for my sins? This kind of prayer makes clear. How do I move as an apprentice, as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ? I think we've sold out to an anemic, halfway, boring kind of gospel that doesn't really challenge us. It's easy rather than simple. And I'll tell you a couple reasons that I'm talking about this. The first one is just because in my own life, I walked the aisle at five, and then I basically spent the next several years, until a few years ago, up to the age of 29, (laughs) not really knowing what it meant that I was sorry for my sins. Nobody kind of mentioned to me what, what apprenticeship really was to live alongside someone and learn how to live that life from them. Live alongside Jesus, the expert, the expert who loves and forgives and is gracious and merciful and serves and learn from him how to do those things, how to be that person. Nobody mentioned those things. So I thought maybe it would be good to mention it. And I know this is part, Woodland Hills is kind of a radical church and good for you for sticking with it. But this is the message of Woodland Hills is to say it's a radical journey that Jesus calls us on. But let's not take what's the core of the gospel and define it as its radical edge. The second reason that I'm talking about this is because I live around people in need. Almost a couple years ago, my family moved into a needy neighborhood in St. Paul, and we uh, decided to engage with our neighbors and get to know people. And we started a little church over there in January. And I really need some radically saved people, some apprentices of Jesus, to reach out of their comfort zone and meet these needs in the name of Christ. And of course, in your neighborhood, in your context, there's needs as well. There's no shortage of knees. Now I wish you could have been here last night because I had about 25 neighborhood people here with me. I had a bunch of teenage boys, and uh, and they were here making a little bit of noise and they were here worshiping and uh, they were here just supporting me and saying we're here as neighbors. And I introduced them and they all stood up and waved to everybody and they felt really important. And they couldn't come today, but they were their kids. A lot of them teenage boys who came here. And they're saying, we represent what Sandra's talking about. And they were brave enough to do that. And I want to tell you, since they're not here, I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. My neighborhood is about three, three and a half miles south and west of here. And in my neighborhood, there's lots of physical needs. We have people who regularly get their power turned off by XL because they can't pay their power bill. And so in April 1st, when XL is allowed to turn the power off, like last year when that happened, it was about 40 degrees. And we had a family of six kids and a single mom living near us whose power got turned off. And so they have no heat and they have no hot water and they have no lights. They have no way of living in the house. And so they all moved into a friend's attic, seven people living in an attic for a couple weeks until they could pull the money together. A lot of times my neighbors don't have any food in the house. My son and I were in a house a bit ago and we went in the kitchen and realized there is no food in the house. There are four children and a single mom and there's no food. And this is three and a half miles from here. There's huge family needs. We had a youth event recently and we had 11 kids there and 10 of them have no dads in the home. One of them has no mom in the home. These boys particularly have no male role models. They have no man to walk in front of them to say, this is what it looks like to be a man in this world who's successful and who's passionate and who has a job and who can survive. They just don't see that anywhere. They don't see healthy marriages. I think some of them, until we moved into the neighborhood, had never seen a couple that had been married for an extended period of time who actually got along and didn't scream and throw things. And they're drawn to it. We have about 87 people in our house all day, every day. Pray for me. <laughs> These youth have needs like you cannot believe. On the way here last night, I had two kids in my car and they said I could talk about them, Cortez and Devante. And they're both 15. And Cortez got in a fight uh, this week and got his throat cut and he had several stitches and it came this close to the jugular. The other kid's still in the hospital And I was talking to them about violence being their only solution to everything and how maybe that's not the best way. And they're saying, well, it's everybody else's solution. We can't just be nonviolent if they're going to be violent. So we're talking about what that meant. And they finally said to me, violence rules. And I said, well, can I quote you on that? They said, yeah, yeah, tell them we think violence rules. And this is what they think. This is how they live. This is their solution to every problem, both the boys and the girls. One of the smartest kids we work with is failing almost all of his classes at Central High, and he's going to go to an alternative school next year and hope he can survive in the school system. I was in the car with one of the boys, and in the course of three miles, he uses the words dumb, stupid, idiot, and shut up about 50 times. And so I started a conversation with him about how maybe that's not the most effective mode of communication. And I I said, maybe you could try to just not say any of those for a bit. So he said, okay, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. Right now, I'm going to do that. And I said, well, maybe you want to think about it. No, I'm going to do it right now. So like 30 seconds later, he calls his sister stupid. And then he looks at me and goes, just kidding. <laughs> and I said, no, you don't get to do that. He's working on it. In my neighborhood, there'll be a whole bunch of kids, little kids sharing the same room without any sheets or mattresses. We have a little four-year-old neighbor who stays up till two in the morning watching movies like Kill Bill. And then he wakes up in the morning with no blankets, no sheets and pillows lying in a pile of videotapes. This is just the daily life. In a small group of girls that we work with, we were asking them to describe what they were afraid of. And one girl, who's about 12, told how every time she was taken away from her mom and put into the crisis center, she had bad dreams. And she told us about one of those dreams, which was that there was a bad man who came to cut her brother's face and that her mom stood by and did nothing to help. And for her, this is just something that you show up with a group of people and talk about how all the time you're getting taken away from your mom and put into the crisis center. This is her daily life. Coach McKenzie coaches basketball in uh, South Minneapolis High School, and he was giving a talk and he shared these statistics. He said that teenage boys right now, before the age of 25, one in four is gonna end up a drug addict by the age of 25. One in four is going to graduate from high school. One in four is going to be in prison. And one in four is going to be dead. By the age of 25 and I hear these statistics and I think about Jamal and Cortez and Devante and Ricky and Wesley and I think these statistics are not good enough I will not surrender these boys to these statistics so we're trying hard to pull together a group of people who will love these kids and surround them and show them healthy adult lifestyles who will surround their moms who will help meet needs, yes, but more than that, build a relationship that's transformational. And this just seems like something that radically sold-out disciples of Jesus Christ might be involved in. And this is just around the corner here from the church. Add to this local crisis things like worldwide hunger, the AIDS pandemic, 34,000 people starving to death every day. There's all kinds of bad news. The good news of Jesus is that we are called, as disciples of Christ, to engage with this. And it seems like these radically giving disciples of Christ might be involved because they live by a different set of values, because they've removed self from the center of decision-making, might engage with these kinds of things. And many are, and particularly at Woodland Hills. This is a drum that's pounded all the time. But if we're asked to picture a Christian, and all we can come up with is someone who goes to church once a week and doesn't swear or get drunk, I think we might be missing something very profound like the gospel. (laughs) Yeah. This kind of talk evokes defensiveness in people, but I just want to point out that if you met a nun who was married, or a basketball player who had never been on a court, or a pilot who would never been in a plane, you would say to them, what? You would say, well, you're not much of a nun, basketball player, pilot, are you? But when we meet people who say they're Christians, who don't do even one of the things that Jesus said his followers would do. In fact, sometimes they do the opposite. All the things that Luke 6 says Christians are supposed to do, they do the opposite, and they're actually judgmental and unforgiving and unloving. And we say, oh, of course they're Christians. Come on in. I think Jesus might be a bit disturbed at this trend. I think he might be disturbed that the core of the gospel has now been defined as the radical fringe. I think he might become concerned that the antithesis of the gospel Judgmentalism, unforgiveness, has actually become the center in some contexts. I think Jesus would be concerned. And in case you think I'm making a bigger deal out of this than is warranted, a recent study by the Barna Research Foundation shows that non-Christians don't have a particularly high opinion of evangelicals. In fact, in a survey that asked them to rank people according to how much they respected them, evangelicals came in 11th, followed by prostitutes in 12th place. And I am not making that up. Tony Campolo tells the story of a conversation he had with an Ivy League professor who said that when people are asked to describe evangelicals, they say things like judgmental, unforgiving, bigoted, reactionary, hypocritical. But when those same people are asked to describe Jesus, they use words like loving, kind, gracious, understanding, and forgiving. Is it just me who sees problem with this? We're talking about Apprenticeship. Okay, so I walk forward and I say, Jesus, I'm going to be your apprentice. I want to sign on for this radical way of life. And then we walk alongside Jesus, and the whole point in walking alongside Jesus and being his apprentice, his follower, his disciple, is that we would learn to live our life as Jesus would live it if he were us. That's Dallas Willard's definition. And then we go out into the world and we say, define Christians, and they say, bigoted, judgmental, reactionary, unforgiving, unloving, and hypocritical, And they describe Jesus as loving, gracious, merciful. I'm thinking the walk's not going well. (laughs) There's something wrong. If we're disciples, the whole goal is to look like the master. Now, I am not preaching a gospel of works. I am not saying go and do all this stuff in order to earn your salvation. This is the charge that's leveled every time that you actually say the Christian life should have content. But we don't think that way with the rapper, right? I'm just saying that from Jesus' own words, we find out what it means to be his disciple. So when we make a decision to be his disciple, to be a Christian, to follow him, these things will result in the same way that saying you're a rapper means some things about how you dress and what kind of music you listen to and how you speak and who you associate with, how you spend your time and money. Can we at least hold Christians to as high a standard as rappers when it comes to representing ourselves? The journey of following Christ is a hard one. It's a calling to die to self, to take up our cross, to love our enemies, to sacrifice all. And in the midst of it, we struggle and we fail, and sometimes we make progress and sometimes we don't. And in the midst of all that, Jesus is with us, bringing grace and mercy and strength and forgiveness. That actually is an exact description all through the New Testament of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And it's a grand adventure. I would highly recommend it to all people. I wasted so many years not knowing what it really meant to be a disciple of Jesus. And I have certainly not arrived, but I've at least started to do some weird things, some radical things in in a small way. I cannot even begin to describe the thrill of having my neighbor come over after we have this conversation about dumb, stupid, idiot, shut up, and having him say, now, I've been thinking about that and I think I'm just gonna try, I'm gonna try to do a whole day where I don't say those things. And he said, but you know, that's how I get talked to at home. And I, don't, I can't even think of any other words. And so to sit at my dining room table and to make time for this and sit down and talk about how, you know, it's not just about you and how you treat your sisters and brothers and how you talk to your mom. It's not just about that. It's about you going into the world as a person with confidence, with a vocabulary, who can hold down a job and who can succeed. Because he doesn't know that if you go get a job at Subway and you call people dumb, stupid idiot and tell them to shut up, you're not going to last at Subway. This is about his spiritual life, his physical life, his family life, and his ultimate success as an adult. And what an honor to sit there and realize he's actually asking me to help him. I just look at myself and I go, why would a 15-year-old African-American boy want to know anything from me? And I think it's just Jesus. I think that's what it is. When people see Jesus, they say, I think there's something there. To take my kids out at... 10 in the morning or 10 at night and get groceries for people who don't have enough is profoundly changing for me and for my kids. You can't be the same after that. And I can't describe how it feels to be the hands and feet of Jesus to hungry people. Now, giving them groceries does not solve every problem. But it earns you a right into the life to bring Jesus there, to bring other healing there, to talk about job skills, decision making, healthy relationships. We need to bring the food because that gets us in the door. And I wouldn't trade these opportunities for a six-figure paycheck, for power, for influence, for anything. There is nothing that compares to this. But this is not what the world tells us. The world says, look out for yourself. Get yourself at the center. And I have to admit, I try to get Jesus in the center, and then I'm doing hip checks trying to get him out again. And then I invite him in again, and this is the journey. And he's so gracious. And I think, just like my neighbor who makes a mistake and then says, just kidding, God is so gracious with us. Where we say, okay, Jesus, be at the center. And then we get really, really, really selfish for a while, and then we go, just kidding. And he says, okay, I got grace and mercy for you. (laughs) You are not called to do the same thing that I am doing, but you are called. Every time I talk about this kind of thing, everyone thinks, oh, she thinks we should be your neighbor. And I hope some of you will be, and I know some of you already are. But you have a calling. And the incredible diversity in the kingdom of God is brought home right in my own family because I have a 15-year-old son, Connor. And I know that means I had him when I was 14, but let's just go with it. <laughs> he, uh, my, friend, my son, Connor, is so different from me. Like completely the opposite. We both like to read. I would say we have that in common. But other than that, he's completely introverted and he wants to go and hide in his bedroom and play with computers and make up websites and play with cameras and film stuff and write plays. And I'm, of course, running around, riding my horse through the neighborhood, stirring up trouble. And so I stir up trouble, and all of a sudden there's 45 people in the house, and we find Connor, like, hiding in the fetal position under his bed. So we're not on the same page. And and he said to me, Now, does this mean if I'm going to make movies, do they all have to be about Jesus? (laughs) I think he was losing the vision a little bit. And I'm like, no, but let's bring Jesus into every context we're in. My deepest desire for Connor is not that he would become me, My deepest desire for Connor is that he would get himself out of the center, invite Jesus in, so that whether he makes movies, designs websites, whether he goes to college, whether he joins servant partners, that he would be a person who has died to self in all areas of his life, where Jesus has taken over. And he's 15, and he has a lot of years left to do that. All of us have more than a minute left to do that. To a lot of us raised in church, the journey to Christ was just a short walk up an aisle. It was 20 yards long. You got there and you were done. I did that as a child and it took a long time to get started on the journey that follows that because I didn't really know there was one. I thought it ended at the altar. But I submit that the calling is to a long and wonderful and invigorating and difficult and thrilling and sometimes painful journey. This is a journey that is both simple and hard. This is a journey that is profound. But what else are you going to do with your next 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years? What else is worth it? I'm going to pray for all of us on this journey. And then I just want to invite, I'm going to ask, after we pray, I'm going to ask, why don't we do it now? Let's everybody stand. And I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray for me. And then I'm going to have Dan put that servant partner's guiding principle back up on the screen after I pray. And then for those of us who are ready to say, you know, I already believe in Jesus and I've already walked the aisle, but today I want to say, I know I'm going to do it imperfectly and I know I'm going to have to say sorry and just kidding once in a while, but maybe together we could commit to this and say, as a body in this community, we're going to decide to die to ourselves and we're going to articulate what those areas might be. And some of you might need prayer and we're going to be available for that. But I just want us to go together, because we all go out to a different place. Some come to my neighborhood, and we go all over the Twin Cities. And what we need to do in those places, we need to bring Jesus in, in a way that's radical, but is really the core of the gospel. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for every person here. There are people here who don't know you. And when they walk this aisle, I want it to be to a deeper journey than one that I heard of growing up. And some of us know you, but we haven't got started too much on the journey. or We're moving in fits and starts, and we know that your grace is sufficient. But we know that you call us, that you have an amazing calling for all of us. You actually have something for us to do. And so God, help us to put down our binoculars and to know, yes, he's coming. But for now, we are his hands and feet. God, help us to walk in that. So I pray for me. And I pray for each person here and I pray for this community as a corporate whole that we would be people who embody the radical yet core, the simple yet hard calling of Jesus, the gospel message. I pray that for each one of us today and we know that it's only through the power of your spirit and through the grace of God that that can happen. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Dan, put up that prayer and let's together, um, if you're ready, and you don't even have to say it if you're not ready, but let's just think about this together. And for those of us who are ready, let's read it together and let's start asking ourselves, what would this mean tomorrow morning? Together, we will seek to die to ourselves in all areas of life, finances, possessions, housing, decision-making, and ministry opportunities. Instead of seeking status and honor among our peers, we will look to be servants. Amen. God bless you. If you need prayer for anything, please come forward.